seeing the world as the ultimate maker set on this episode of the Makers and Nerds podcast. So let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Makers and Nerds podcast, where I chat with makers and nerds all about their passions and hobbies and how they are making money with it. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a maker and a nerd. In today's episode, I speak with Jay Silver, one of the founders and creators behind Makey Makey, about his project, passion, creativity, and how seeing the world in a different way can make you a better maker. But before I bring him on, I just want to remind you to go check out makersandnerds.com to join our community of makers and nerds helping each other make money with our hobbies and passion. All right, let's get Jay on. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here. Hey, thanks. So first of all, I got to start. That's a cool room, man, you got behind there. Tell us real quick a little bit about you or about the room. Yeah, sure. I mean, the room is Joy Labs. It's, uh, you know, a spot in my favorite um, hometown strip mall from when I grew up where I used to go to the coffee shop and where I used to go to the juice bar and everything like that and hang out with my friends, ride bikes, ride skateboards. And I just slowly added things um, as I needed to make projects. So we just have some electronics and a little bit of mixed reality stations and a, a bunch of toys. Um, oh, you got mixed reality? Cool. I was big time into VR. I'm still am actually. Cool. Yeah, we're developing some mixed reality like maker stations that we want to put on the market soon that are all about making things out of everyday objects and combining them with projected screens, which right. people call mixed reality. Yeah, like AR basically, right? Like AR with, mm -hmm. right. yeah. Yeah, mixed because of the projector. And then on the other side of this wall right here is Joy Kids, where there are 10 to 15 kids every day um, pursuing passion project based learning experiences uh, outside of school. That's crazy stuff. We're going to get into that in real, in just a second and all of that, because that's all cool stuff. No worries. First of all, like always, I asked all my guests, are you a maker, a nerd, or both? I guess I'm both. I think that you take on different, I take on different personas at different times so that I can have my best, my best viewpoint by combining different viewpoints. And um, I guess I take on the viewpoint of a maker, a nerd, a spiritual seeker, a dad, a, you know, a, a scientist, <laughs> whatever will give me a new vantage point. Yeah. And that's, that's good. I mean, that also shows about that you have to be flexible in life, right? It's not just putting you in a box and this is who I am. I think like, not only do you need to be flexible to get through life, but it's like you create yourself through the struggle of the hero's journey of that flexibility. Life flexes you. <laughs> Completely. That's so true. So tell us about what you make because you call yourself a maker. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to think in my own mind, so I don't know if I should say this out loud, that I like to make like freedom, but there's lots of senses of freedom. There's like, oh, freedom of speech and freedom of action and all this stuff. But I feel like the way the world is, like reality itself is something that we could decide together something I almost think of as like legacy democracy. Mm -hmm. Like don't vote with your, in the voting booth, don't vote with your mouth even, even though that's good. Vote with your hands like right now and recreate the world a little at a time. And so I try to make tools that give people that, that vantage point and that action of, I can co-create reality, all of us together, eight billion pairs of hands working as a team. 
So I try to create that freedom with tools or lectures or things I write. They're all like meant to be a little bit of a pill or a little bit of a inspiration or a little bit of an example of how you can start recreating reality on a very small scale for yourself right now. And we're going to get into Makey Makey because that's a, a very, very cool thing you've, you've created. <laughs> but um, why, is, why is making so important? to you and you feel it's important to the world in general? I mean, humans are makers and humans are other things. Humans are nurturers, you know, it's not, you know, we're only makers, right? Although even when we, when even life itself is the act of reproducing itself, mm -hmm. almost in the definition. If you look at the modern maker movement, like Dale Darity's Make Magazine, and if you look at the subtitle even of that magazine, it's technology on your time, which I never thought was a very inspiring subtitle. But if you break it down a little, technology is really really like the changing of reality through our through creative acts. And after a little while, it stops being new. So we was calling it technology, but even you know, a ceramic cup is a creative act and everything else. Um, and so technology on your time, well, like I guess. What does your time mean? Everything should really be our time, but I guess right. you know we were born without land, and we have to we have work sometimes for things like food and things. So it, that makes sense. But so it's really relates really like like your own excitement, your own passion and flow, and creating or recreating reality in a way that's in flow with you. And so making really is that. And when you look at the maker movement or go to a maker fair, you feel everybody, you feel some special spark there. I felt some special some spark when I first went to a maker fair. And I thought, oh my gosh, these people are, even if what they're making is like dumb, or even if what I brought it, I brought like silly, we're all, we all brought it because we got inspired by something and we're all changing reality a little bit by weaving a plastic bag from the grocery store into a hat I can wear. It doesn't matter what it is, but it, is. Mm -hmm. it just changed the nature of experience a little bit through, through any creative, even if you just write a song, it doesn't have to be that you made something with your hands, but hands. And that is exciting to me. And I think it's a little bit of what defines humanity. And so it's, it's powerful. But if you look at humanity today, if I feel like they're defined more by consumerism than by making. And, and I'm a big proponent of converting people from being from consumers. Now, of course, we have to consume because otherwise, if you make nobody consumes it, then what's the point, right? At the end of the day, by the day, understand. But I, I'm hoping that people can convert to majority of the time making versus majority of the time consuming. At least I, I brought up my kids that way, right? So why is making so important versus just consuming? Yeah, I mean, I mean, any system needs to be making things, making, putting things out. And I mean, you can plant a tree, you can also eat a fruit from a tree and right. definitely nothing wrong from grabbing a, <laughs> catching a fruit that falls and consuming it that, you know, you didn't really design the fruit, um, but there needs to be a balance. So like right. everything, it's not that I think no one should consume anything. It's just that it's a little out of balance right now. And that's because we created this amazing thing, I guess, called industry, which are really good at producing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a miracle. It's a miracle in its own when it's a, but it did put things out of balance. And a lot of things that we don't like, or that we think are wrong, aren't necessarily bad. It's just about proportionality. So I think if we can design consumption to be a combination of making and consuming at the same time for example like like if you design 
TVs so that you are modifying the show you're watching while you're watching it or making something out of the show. I mean, a video feed, that's a substance. I could make something with a substance. Okay, great. Give me the video feed in a form where I can start chopping it up, adding things to it, mixing it around, sharing things. Sharing. Kind of like then, Minecraft, right? That's a perfect example of consuming, but also kind of making. It is a little of both there. And so I think there are other ways we can think about and if we can propagate new design methodologies and design paradigms out to the people who are making mm -hmm. these mediums that are the message, um, then the mediums and therefore the message will be that you are a creator who's connecting to other people and remixing what everybody's making. And remixing means you're consuming. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but when it's out of balance, you lose your creative impulse and something feels um, like you're, you're missing something. Yeah, totally. So obviously the title of this episode is seeing the world as the ultimate maker said, which is something you came up with, right? I just thought it was great and I used that as my title for this episode. Explain to us, uh, what do you mean by seeing the world as the ultimate maker said? What does that mean? The first time I ever said it, I was walking to a Chinese restaurant with my research group and I told my friend, like there's something about this research I'm doing that I feel like I'm intertwining with nature, but it's not like nature, like the trees. It's like nature, like the city and like the houses and like, and like, you know, like the urban, I live in an urban area. So I felt like I was intertwining with modern nature and I slowly massaged that term until I came up with the world as a construction kit, which, which I know doesn't seem totally congruous, but I stepped from that first statement, which was kind of a murky statement that made sense to me, mm -hmm. to the idea that the world is a construction kit. And in a way that is really obvious, like I didn't decide the world was remixable. The world, we have hands, things are movable in X, Y, and Z space. You can cut them and break them and remix them and cut them and them and order and pestle them. And you know, you can lash them and, and hot glue them and glue whatever you want to do today. Um, and you can use digital media tools to do those equivalent things and you can go to the hardware store and mod your house. And so this is not my idea, but there is this lack of catalyst to see the world as if it were a construction kit. And there's furthermore, once something is made, once an item is finished by someone else, it seems like it has a purpose already. And so it is hard to think of it as what it truly is with a loose part, the way we think of a stick or a leaf or the way that uh, a kid sees the world because they don't know what its purpose is because they mm -hmm. haven't learned, I guess, what its purpose is supposed, supposed by who I don't know to be. Um, and at that point, you can remix nature, but modern nature and nature is human made stuff, you know, like, like this tripod is for a camera, right? But like it could be for so many other things, but it's harder to see that um, once we have grown into learning what things are supposed to be. And so the world as a construction kit is this idea that we can encourage people and you can even see this drawing on my wall, which is a drawing of that. Um, the idea that the world can be something else, that else. The river is music and the trees are wires and the bark is paper and um, <clears throat> plants are dyes that you can you use to make new things out of. And um, the world we live in is completely only the way it is right now until we vent in or invent in some new way for it to be from some other dimension or some other idea that we have. So um, 
this is a really a design idea that we can design tools, environments, rituals, learning curricula to give the power back to the learner to say, the world you live in is what you imagine you to be. And let's get started. One thing I love, uh, the point you're making is that even though you have an object that may have um, a, a, a most, mostly a purpose for, for doing something, that that it's all purpose right that's that's i think what you're trying to encourage people is to look at the world around and don't think of the cup that holds water as its only purpose yes that's one of the, of the purposes for that but that many other things you can do with it right it would be silly to not know that a cup can hold water but a cup uh, in this case is literally holding water but what other properties does it have what's its heat conduct conduct i can get a sense of that just by touching it how hard is it how hard is What's its shape and what is that contour good for? What can it contain? What can you mix it with? Um, how rigid is it? What, what is it? How does it conduct electrons? Um, uh, you know, where is it from? What other uh, emotional associations does it have? And you can start examining its properties, which only when they come together with an idea form a specific purpose, but those properties separately can be used in any way I can imagine. So a good example of a tool that helps you see something as a construction kit is something that takes a property as an input like take the color of something as an input okay now well this was for eating but now it's for yellowing so if yellow right. means something now <laughs> this is for and it has a shape well how do i use that and so looking at something's properties you can decompose it well that's a perfect example because you can take the the peel of the banana and and put it on top of paper and go like this on top of the paper right and all of a sudden you have now some sort of coloring tool that before it was just an eating thing right totally totally and you know like if you watch enough cartoons you think okay a banana is a trap or if you play mario kart you think okay bananas for right. somebody with and also bananas are comical for whatever reason and then also if you have a makey makey, a banana is a piano. So it's like, where does this go? And what are we doing with this? Um, there's also artists who specialize in this, like uh, uh, Alex Gray. Oh, sorry, got my art wrong artist. Andy Goldsworthy um, will take things apart and put them back to them better. You know, take, he would take a banana apart if it appeared in nature, but he'll take leaves and sort them into mm -hmm. a rainbow hue, hue or attach them with little thorns to make a snake in a river. Um, so, you know, we can remix what those things are but the, so i'm totally with you um yeah. and again you mentioned Minky Minky. we're going to jump into that in just a minute but i want to yeah. explore this a bit further because this is really interesting to me yeah push is it. how we put ourselves in a box we adults put ourselves in a box i guess it's either through environment through through just learning through life. I don't know what it is, but we put ourselves in a box, right? And we look at a banana and we go, oh, it's a fruit that we're gonna eat. And that's it, that's it, right? How do we get back to the kindergarten days? You you say this in one of your talks, which I totally agree, where um, the world is a canvas and you don't know what the purpose of anything is as a kid. You just go and grab stuff and start making stuff. How can we as adults go back to that? Yeah. and. I mean, it's easy as a kid because you actually don't know what all the meanings of everything are according right. to other humans that came before you. So that's a natural beginner's mind, but we can have our, an artificial beginner's mind too. And there's lots of way to get into it. Um, lots of ways from, you know, kind of like your stereotypical things you might think of, like you could try different ancient forms of mind bending, whether it's relaxation, uh, hypnosis, meditation, you know, all the things that you could probably imagine there. And then there's just, there's, um, 
what artists know about, uh, you know, flow states and musicians and artists are getting into these states and practicing <clears throat> with a muse in the room and channeling, you know, inspiration, um, mm -hmm. which could come in the form of art or in the form of spirituality. Um, but uh, there are there are other ways from from using like mind altering substances, even like caffeine, which uh, Michael Pollan wrote a whole book about caffeine and how it changed the landscape. I'm not just throwing caffeine out there like, oh, it's a common thing we use. Like, it seems as if science revolution may have been influenced by caffeine, like it's very powerful. Yeah. And so we can look at these substances and foods, lack of foods like fasting, the cheapest diet and simplest diet in the world is not eating for some amount of time. And um, how we have creative confidence as we move through the world peripherally with other people conjugating with us. So if I'm in a room with certain people, how does that change the way I look at things. And there are many practices, rituals, and combinations of these people and, you know, and artistic practices and all these things, things that can lead to different vantage points, some of which are very beginner's mindy. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about beginner's mind. My very first art collective with Eric Rosenbaum was named the beginner's mind. And I'm excited about it as a concept. And there's lots of ways to get into it. And our mind, we, we do get stuck as adults. So but I think it's just the nature of the human mind itself. It's not some reason we put ourselves in a box. It's just that as you age, age the tribe evolutionarily, it makes sense to learn things and then stop learning things because things don't change that darn fast or they didn't used to. Yeah. So it's, it's adaptive, but I think we have ways we can break out of it. And tribes had all kinds all of DMT substances, dancing around fires, tribal drums, and all kinds of methods to break out of fixed mindset and we use all those today and we can make up new ones which is, which is uh, what's your thought at i personally i believe also that it's the way we're brought up that we end up putting ourselves in a box right works right we'll no probably a lot more than we're told yes right no don't do that don't that's bad for you no don't try that right and i love to see kids when they're coding they try anything they're not worried they don't care about the rules they or or when they're building anything they just try it it doesn't matter and your immediate reaction as an adult is no no don't do that no 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 that's that you know so how much do you think is that that when we grow up we have that little inner voice telling us no constantly and that's why we don't see the world as this construction set which we should yeah i think that's a good point and i think no is power is and it should be used for historically poisonous plants or modern day like traffic or something. Um, but it's powerful and it does, it leaves the tiniest little scar emotionally right. because it's meant to. It's not that it, oh, how dare you use the word no. It's like, oh no, no, that's a powerful word. Should you should. And and even the modern, the modern day, there's a weakness in the modern day kindness of, oh, don't tell anybody no, no. Like sometimes people need to know no, no. But just recognize what it does. It blocks off that pathway, at least temporarily, sometimes permanently, for somebody to go thinking down and go exploring down. And so, um, you know, the whole yes and mentality of improvisation can be brought into real life. And not all of life should be improvisational and, and encouraged all the time. But again, it's about a balance. And we do yeah, need to yeah. switch that balance back to... Yes, and or to put it another way in learning is, I don't know, is ask a question um, and open up a, a, dialogue, a dialogue because no can make your point. But also, what do you think will happen if we do that? Or I don't know why the sky is blue. I wonder why it is. Hmm. And then wonder, what if you wonder in front of someone, someone, oh, if you touch that plant, I wonder what will happen. I, 
I just want to think about it in front of you right now. You wouldn't say that, but that might do that. And what does that do to the person? What right. kind of, if no leaves a tiny blockade, what does it do if you ask a question? What does it do if you wonder? What are these different reactions? How do they carve out, out shape or encourage different pathways of thinking of somebody's reality? Well, and I think we need to ask why. It's what more too. Because when you get no, I think, and I love it because I've said no to my kids before and they go, why? And then I was like, I don't know. Why so beautiful? And that why challenges, and that challenged me as a parent. It does. Yeah. <laughs> why is very challenging. There's, there's bits about the repeated asking of the word yeah. why, and it's extremely challenging because it gets down to some sub-fundamental something axiomatic if you ask it enough. And that's because why is a mental linguistic hack that says go deeper. I mean, don't tell someone go deeper. That doesn't work, but you tell right. them why. And it says, level deeper, please. I want to know what you're basing that on. Right. <laughs> it's, right. it's a hack. It's a linguistic beauty. It's a marvel. I love that. I never saw it that way, but you're right. You're right. So this mentality you have led you to the project that where I found out about you was Makey Makey. So first of all, first of all tell us real quick, what is Makey Makey? I do want to know, how did you come up with the name with Makey Makey? It's such a cool name. Sure. Um, we had a list of names and we were messing around. We had like Earth Programmer and all these names. And just throw <laughs> like anything, that. That's throw anything cool. at the wall. Well, it was cool. I don't know if it has the same ring. No, no. Yeah. Um, right. But maybe at first the word came, came because of the maker movement and then the fact that we were making keys, like we were literally making everyday objects into key presses as far as the cars was concerned. Mm. So there's a portmento of make and key makey. And then also just makey sounded so cute. Like there's this idea, oh, I made something, I invented something. Oh, wow, you're creative, you're an inventor. Well, right. people have a hard time thinking about that as a first step. Oh, a step one, I'll invent something, that seems hard. But, you know, if it's cuter, like, hey, we'll just do a little inventy, you know, a little makey. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I made it a little cuter because in English, the Y on the end of the word is the term of endearment or something like that. And then if you repeat it twice, that's playful. And it also hints at the design thinking, iteration, nature of mm -hmm. how you really do slowly carve something out by putting things on the table, taking things off, putting new things on, taking them off. And so you, and so makey makey contains in it a cute version of making iteration and the fact that you make anything into a key, a key. but you had so, another question. So. Yeah. Well, tell us, tell us about makey makey. Tell us exactly what it is. Sure. So makey makey is duct tape, a special kind of duct tape between the digital world and the physical world. So my claim is that there's nothing as fast as duct tape to stick two things together. You can challenge that if you want. Strings pretty good and hot glue are pretty good. Um, a duct tape and pretty much does it. <laughs> it's pretty fast. And nothing is as fast as makey makey for sticking digital stuff to physical stuff. And by sticking, I mean making a um, meaningful connection so that when you then touch the physical thing, it controls the digital thing. And the idea with makey makey was to make it so that you could change the meaning of everyday objects. And it started before Makey Makey with other projects like Draudio. Draudio let you turn everyday objects into music. The most famous was a pencil. You would thumbtack into the center of a pencil where graphite runs down the middle. Mm -hmm. And graphite is conductive and thumbtack thumb pins are conductive. And so you made an electrical circuit by thumbtacking in. And then you would draw graphite on the paper, paper. And then you would touch the paper and your body and the graphite on the paper were conductive. So you had all these wires, wires, the push pin, the 
graphite running down the middle of the pencil, the graphite splayed out in little flakes at a microscopic level on the paper and your body, human skin and all the 90%, 60%, all the waters and mixtures of oils and skin. And um, all those things together made a circuit with this little tiny 555 timer circuit called Draudio. And you could draw music on a sheet of paper and you could also hook that circuit up to things that weren't pencils and you could get sound out of those things. And we, instead of sound being the output, What's the most powerful output we could get? We got to get something more. These squeaks are really cool because uh, all of a sudden uh, drinking a cup becomes like a sound maker. So, okay, cool. But what if it wasn't a sound maker? What's the most powerful output we have? And it seems like computation is the thing. Mm -hmm. Like laptops are musical instruments, but they are games and they are inventions and they are cameras and they are things that can buy things and all kinds of computational <clears throat> outputs. And so... It took us a while, but eventually, you know, skipping some steps, we eventually figured out keyboard, like keyboards are how you get information into computers, and ma mouses and keyboards are how you get information into computers. So if we can just hack that, which the human interface device protocol is the modern day keyboard and mouse protocol. So we'll just tell the computer, hey, I'm a mouse, I'm a keyboard, and send HID, human interface and interface signals to it, and the computer will just take those. No matter right. what app we're in, you know, key, keystrokes and clicks, mouse clicks, they work with any app, any web page. So we'll just pretend that there are keystrokes and key clicks, and then we'll make it so that when you touch an object with your finger, or when two objects touch each other and come together, if they're at all electrically conductive at all, just a little bit even, then we'll send a keyboard press or a click to the computer, and that means any object can now trigger any computer event. So we had a pairing. And as you pair those things creatively, there's a lot of possibilities. So these objects become sort of the, the human interface to the computer that to control whatever it needs, it, you want to control. Yes, just like if you could pop a key off a keyboard and exactly. solder it to the world, which people have done, and that was inspiring to us, then that thing in the world becomes the interface. But instead of Soldering, you just kind of alligator clip. So you have so you board, a makey makey board, and then you hook up. I don't know if you have one there to show, but yeah, at least I have a picture of one on me. Yeah, um, and so we'll I link it. Look we'll a little harder, but, anyway. but yeah, it's a board fine. like that, so, right? And you can yeah, hook and up. then you and hook up hook Earth. This is what we call Earth. You normally call it ground, but we just think what really is ground? It's like right, literally planet Earth is what it is. Exactly. And so you hook this up to um, one object, such as your body. You could hold this. You could hold an alligator clip in your fingers and hook it up here. Mm -hmm. And then you hook up another alligator clip to one of these keys, up, down, left, right arrow, mm -hmm. space bar, or click. And there's more keys on the back. And once you hook up one alligator clip to the bottom and one alligator clip, say, to the space bar, then if those two alligator clips were to touch together, it would push the space key just as if I had come by and hit that button right there. The computer wouldn't know the difference. And that could make a character jump or a sound play, play of a number of other things that you can do with a computer. And so by hooking up objects cleverly, you can make all kinds of interactions happen. Right, exactly. exactly. You have, um, I know in one of your videos, uh, the, the stairs in a house become piano keys. Right, yeah. So if you hook up a banana and then you hook up your body and then you touch the banana, the moment you touch the banana, it presses a key on the computer and that can be a sound on a piano. And if you have several bananas, now you have an entire piano. Or if you hook up Play-Doh and you shape the Play-Doh like a game controller and then you hook up each key, then as you touch the keys, touch the blobs of Play-Doh, which are now 
right. game controller buttons, yeah. you can control a character on your computer that runs around and jumps. Yeah, totally. So where have you found success with this? Is it mostly with kids? Are you seeing this adults? I can see even like museums wanting to use this for changing the interface to their pieces, right? Lots of museums use it in exhibit design. Uh, lots of marketing teams use it to create, uh, to make creative media installations for their, you know, for their advertisements products, or right. products. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and prototype prototypes use it. And at first, this is how it was being used along with lead developers at, you know, libraries or maker spaces or museums or after school programs, kind of your alpha adopter type people. And then after that, um, you started seeing schools change over the last 10 years to be more project-based. Mm -hmm. And now most of the people who purchase are schools. And, um, and while we didn't design it for the school of today, uh, we, you know, we didn't design it for schools the way they were 10 or 15 years ago, but we did design it for schools of today without knowing it because we didn't realize schools would be open to creative project-based learning at the rate that they now are. And so now most people who buy it are schools, but you still see it being used by musicians. And in fact, you can act the um, massive attack uh, teardrop played by uh, a DJ J views on YouTube has millions of views and he creates a whole, you know, a whole, awesome. uh, whole awesome. creates a whole song from a grocery store. Yeah, um, no, I could totally see that. Now, <laughs> something interesting you just said, which surprised me is that, um, schools you didn't you weren't your original target and you didn't think schools of i guess seven years ago really really so explain that to me that because i would think a, a, an educational institution to be open to anything that's creative to stimulate the mind of kids but it's not on any of the the or very few if any of the um standards and uh, schools get money based on standards and you have to have standards aligned curriculum. So, I mean, of course, teachers are interested in this topic. The, yeah. the question was never, never do teachers want it? It's just how do they fit it in? Is it in vogue? And also, do they are they taught in their teacher training about STEM or prem-based learning? And I mean, 30 years ago, the answer was almost definitely no. They were taught about critical thinking, creative writing, things like that. So it's not that it's not on their minds, right? But mm -hmm. Um, only in the last five years did it go from project-based learning, I think I've heard of that, to project-based learning, yeah, we're doing that, but we need more help. Give us some tools. And so that's a much better position to be in where teacher, teachers are actually asking for helping. For yeah, totally. No, that makes a lot of sense. So um, going back to uh, um, creativity and, and seeing the world in a different way, um, you, you use a term called invention literacy. Uh, I mean, I, I get what it means, but explain for your take on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, in some ways, I like to think of it as even more fundamental than traditional literacy, which is like, you know, words and, and spoken and all that stuff. And even, even, you know, in some ways more important than quantitative literacy, those would be the two maybe most popular literacies today, along with maybe digital. Is digital literacy that? third most popular. So I like to think of invention literacy as what humans do when they combine things and try to survive and try to delight each other and try to live as a community and um, try to make things comfortable and try to make things beautiful, all those things. Mm -hmm. And it has a language and it has a, you know, there are, there are phonemes and letters like transistors and bits of code and um, as, as well as like, you know, uh, 
basics of woodworking and things like that. It's not only, you know, the most newest technologies. Right. And and there are ways of putting those together and conjugating those. And so there are ways of making sentences by how do you combine different basic operators um, into more complicated things like small chips and, you know, like uh, functions and, and things like that. And, and, um, and there are, you know, analogously, um, just like there are famous writers, there are famous inventors, and you can read their books and their creations and their patents and, and the things that they created, those are the, the literature. Um, and so there are, are all these analogies you can make with inventing um, and just thinking of even literacy itself, thinking of the alphabet itself as an invention shows you how powerful invention literacy could be. And of course, literacy is very powerful and we can use it to talk about and write about invention literacy so they can feed back on each other. But I think invention literacy is the right phrasing for the modern day literacy better than digital or better than 20, certainly better than 21st century. It is a literacy and fluency with the world that we live in and how it works, um, you know, how um, and how you can break that into its parts and how you can reconfigure it. Um, and I have a essay on that, on that, which you could Google. Definitely. But how do we teach that mindset? Because you mentioned something about schools, which they're all based on standards. And to me, standards go against creativity and this invention mind, right? I mean, we need, we need to know, have a basis that we all need to know and understand but sometimes having too many of these standards that everybody has to think the same way goes totally against this having inventors mindset. How do we, how do we I mean, first of all, I'd love to hear if you agree or disagree with that and your take on that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, there's always a, there's a need for standards at some level. Um, but I think we just went a little overboard <laughs> by tying every bit of funding to it and requiring it as an absolute and, and not giving teachers freedom. Steiner says that the best thing a teacher can bring is their own authenticity to present in front of the classroom. And that authenticity is a magical channel that will enliven all of the minds of the learners as well as that of the teacher and bring them together around what? Well, who cares as long as they're alive, but around something. Yeah. So if the teacher is a musician and they're teaching fractions, we'll start with hand drumming because those are fractions and the teacher is very excited about that if they are a musician. So this idea, you know, is pushed away the more we focus on standards as the only center point. And so we need a, a rebalancing. Um, but the question of how do you teach that, I think is a question of what are we really teaching? Because if we really want to teach facts, like if we really just want to teach transistors and for loops, then just keep teaching the same way we're teaching. Um, but I don't think you get great writers by teaching grammar because great writing comes from great thinking and great thinking doesn't come from showing someone a path that's already been traveled or teaching somebody a set of rules. Not that you don't want to brush up with rules and not that you don't want to read people who came before you. Of course you want that. But if you want a great writer or a great mathematician, which someone who's quantitatively fluent, they don't have to even make entirely new theorems, but just someone who can think on the fly quantitatively. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think you want to use more of an invention literacy approach. And that means you're not teaching information or knowledge um, rather, you're teaching a way of participating in a community and a way of acting out of insight and passion. And along the way, all the skills, and then on top of that, the knowledge got layered on top. So you start with the why instead of starting with what. You start with the why, then you start 
That's that's the inspiration. That's the invention literacy. Then you mm-hmm. add in the how. That's the skills. And then you end up with the what, and that's the knowledge. And you just layer it in a different way. People talk about you know, flipping the knowledge structure upside down and starting with why instead of starting with basic right. um, rote skills. And so this is similar to that. And so I think that we can bring in all kinds of new concepts to help teach in this way. And I'll just give a few examples. So um, one example is uh, legitimate peripheral participation. And this is just like a long word that comes out of learning theory made by someone else that just means have people enter a community of practice where they're already doing the thing that you want to be done, whether it's mathematics or coding or whether it's you know pottery or quilting, it doesn't matter. And then let them be there and watch other people doing this and get a sense of them doing that and get a sense that they belong there. Because how are you going to be a mathematician if you don't think of yourself as one? And right. how are you going to learn what it is that quilters do if you don't kind of see the kind of actions they do? And very naturally, the way humans do take that in. So that's just one example. Another example is let's flip learning disorders to schooling disorders because maybe it's not a <laughs> learner's incorrect nature. Maybe it's the learning methodology that's being presented to them that doesn't, that doesn't mesh the input with their particular right. style of output. So we can flip that and we can, instead of asking someone to be creative, we can say, what about micro creativity? How do you design this? situation so someone can take the smallest possible step of creative action that you almost wouldn't call creative but it is their own step and it's a small step and put together they can build up that creative muscle so we can start introducing those terms and new types of tools like makey makey and new types of grading mechanisms like uh portfolio over you know over numeric grades and there's a lot of things that can come together once you change your mindset about how learning works and i'm only naming a few but taken in get get it teaches somebody not that we not that we want them to go to a certain place that we had in mind, but it teaches them how to navigate itself, which is, I think, more valuable, along with knowing how to read a map. But but where's that inspiration? How do you navigate on the fly? So I think if we just we could bring all these to bear at the same time. And so what are your thoughts on passion? Because you are a passionate guy. I mean, I can see just by the way you speak, you're super passionate, right? And I think everything you said is 100% correct. However, without injecting that with passion, I think that to me, passion is what drives everything at the end of the day, is what makes you keep going even when the world tells you no, even when you're not making money, even when you're dirt, you know, poor, and you don't, I, passion is the only thing that keeps you going. So yeah. How do we inject passion into all of this, both at the school level, at the parenting level, at every level in life, right? Because I see that. I see that passionate people, when I see, when people make it, quote unquote, whatever you want to, whatever that means, they're usually passionate people. Yes, they're smart, they're creative, but mostly they're passionate. They believe in what they're doing. The best thing we can do as teachers maybe even parents is helping someone identify their talents and their talents and their passions are mixed because you know you could have an inclination for something but if like a predisposition for being good at something but if you're not interested in it right or passionate about it it won't really become a talent Um, and you could be interested in something but if you kind of don't have the right kind of like nature to become good at it so identifying that crossover between those two things and encouraging the brush up against that and interaction with that, that's really powerful as a parent or a teacher um, or as somebody who's in the world as, as mm-hmm. a holder of space with our peers is really important. 
and telling people what you really appreciate about them, um, what really makes them special. That That is probably the same thing that will make them passionate. And in legacy reality, by which I mean before we layered all these other realities on top, before we um, have you know digital realities and expectations of humans and um, an understanding of what everybody thinks, but in legacy reality, we have natural drives. We have chemistry, mental chemistry. We have a whole physical system that pushes us to want and yearn to do something. And it's not always about being creative. Sometimes it's about survival. It's this mix of survival. It can be creative. It can be playing your role in a group temporarily, um, combining with others, social, you know, social drives, all these drives mixed together. So we have to take that into account. And we have to get to that most basic question of why, which I think every presentation should start out with. And Nietzsche said, if there's a why, then we, someone will never stop seeking the answer. Someone, someone has infinite energy if they have a why. And what does that mean if they don't have a why? Do they have, what, where do they draw their source of inspiration? I, I think you have to connect to that, um, sometimes at least. <laughs> right. And, um, and I think you have to have space too. We think that passion is always going, going, going all the time, but passion comes from a space where you have quiet time to think and where you don't know what you're doing and you are lost. A big, powerful moment uh, in an archetypal sense is to get lost in the woods and to have your big night out and to not know if you'll survive in some sense, maybe socially or maybe mm -hmm. becoming a a grown up or whatever it is and to come out through the struggle of you know of trying to make meaning try to make something of yourself and that it's not all great and passion's not all easy and you don't always know what you want and i don't always know what i'm supposed to do and sometimes i'm lost and sad and don't right. believe in myself and that in pair with the triumphant moment of figuring out something meaningful I can contribute and something I care about. And then all my cylinders fire and my heart's beating and my stomach clenches and I know what I'm doing, you know? So there it's a, it's a holistic sense of finding that passion. Well, and if, so this leads me to failure because we teach kids failing is bad, but we should be teaching that failing is good. In my mind, I think failing is good because to me, failing means you've tried and you can learn from failure and it's not a negative thing. But in general, failure is thought as a negative thing, right? Because these challenges that you were talking about, that really is quote unquote failure, right? It didn't succeed in the way you thought it was gonna succeed. How do we encourage failure? And I know that sounds weird, encouraging failure. No, it it's almost sounds in a way it's stereotypical amongst um, you know, like people who are talking about how to make change, how to do good things in the world. So it used to be a taboo topic. I think failure is awful. And what I mean by that is it feels it, you know, it's fun to talk about, but it it's tough to take. Yep. And I think what's so great about failure is when you come back from it <laughs> and it, it's hard. <laughs> and I think people like to just say, oh, you got to fail, you know, and sure you have to, you have to try things and they have to not work. And the way I talk about that is you don't know the map. If you only went down main street, you have to go down a lot of roads and find and the dead lost. ends, right? get lost and find, find, you know, find the loops and get out of the loops, but also find the dead ends and backtrack and be tired and be in danger and have glory 
through that process of searching. And so I have failed um, most recently in, or most largely recently with the launch of GameBender. And I'm trying to come back from that and launch GameBender again, just as one example. But it did not feel good and I wasn't fine. Um, but I'm coming back now and I'm stronger and I know some of my weak spots and I'm ready to try again. And after coming back from a big failure, then little failures feel like nothing. And so failure is powerful because it teaches you your limits and builds you up stronger and teaches you to be fearless. And you need to be, you know, modulatedly fearless, depending on the situation within reason, you need to be fearless to make breakthroughs. So you have, and, 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 I and think life you need requires to also bravery. Not, and I think it requires you to not feel good all the time because then you'll never know when you're really feeling good. I think failure yes. and not feeling good is, I mean, obviously we don't want to feel bad all the time, but if you don't have those moments of failure and not feeling good, you never know when you've succeeded. And on top of that, in my opinion, you never know how to change and make and become better. Right. Yeah. So we don't want to nerf people from feeling hard situations, but we don't want right. to also push them out farther beyond where they can reach and cause major trauma either. Of so course. there's this middle zone. It's a balance, right? You can think of it as a bullseye, one circle around the bullseye, that is the happy growth zone. And then there's the deep water that's beyond that circle. Right. And you wanna get in that flow zone a lot of the time. Yep. And you want to touch those deep waters and then go back to safety. Exactly. And explore those boundaries. And yeah, failure yeah. is great. And people talk about it a lot, but I just feel like it's harder than it seems like. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's easier said than than done, of course. Sure. Jay, um, I, I haven't gone through all the questions, but we're pretty much at the end here, man. Oh, I could talk to you for hours. You're you're such a cool person to talk to. I really appreciate this. Thanks for the interview. And I really love the long form nature and your on the fly reaction nature to the conversation. Um and that, you know, not everything is planned and some of your questions that spurred off the questions were really nice. And I think I want to see more people talking the way people used to talk in the old days. Exactly. They have a conversation, right? Just have a conversation. <laughs> All we need is our coffee or whatever your drink is. It doesn't matter what it is, <laughs> whatever it may be. Jay, if uh, people should go check out Makey Makey, they should go check out uh, joylabs.com. Uh, anything else you want to tell them to go check out? Yeah, check out the wellspring of inspiration in your heart because it's a mag it's a magical. It's a fantastic way of ending this conversation. Jay, thank you so much, <laughs> man. I really appreciate it. Seriously. Thanks. Okay. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Makers and Nerds podcast. If you did, please subscribe and hit the like button. If you didn't, please leave a comment below and tell me why. Also, remember to visit makersandnerds.com to join our community of makers and nerds helping each other make other money with our hobbies and passion. And if you want to get a hold of me, as always, email me, marcelo at makersandnerds.com. On a final note, remember to believe in yourself. I know you can do it. Take your hobby, go make money with it, and do what you love all the time, not just have to work. So until the next episode, see ya. Yeah.